we're all impermanent and, and, and get, the, get the wake up call and start to live my life, change myself. And that's what I said before, what I've noticed many people who've been given the wake up call, who get cancer, think they're gonna die. It demands they confront the reality. What is the purpose of life? What the hell am I doing here? And the wake up call is don't waste your precious life. Don't waste this day, make the most of it. Develop yourself and help others. That's the bottom line. And then when you do die, you'll be cool. Welcome to another episode of the Death Science Podcast, where we explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. Please like, share, and subscribe to support. You can find the audio on all major podcast platforms, and you can find the video at www.catacomb.tv. Welcome to episode number six. Today's guest is Rabina Corton. She is a Buddhist nun, teacher, influencer, book editor, and so much more. We'll be talking about how to guide yourself personally through your death, how to fully be there for a dying loved one, as well as Buddhist perspectives on death and dying, and so much more. But before we get started, I want to talk about catacombculture.com. This is where I sell my sculptures. My sculptures being functional home decor that I make out of hyper-realistic human bones that I also make. From human bold lamps to food-safe skull bowls, I make a lot of Memento Mori-friendly pieces that serve as reminders that our lifespans are limited, so let's make the best out of the time that we have left. Explore my bone gallery at catacombculture.com. Also, restinggrounds.org. This site will guide you in exploring alternative post-life care for your deceased body. Your deceased body has the potential to literally save lives, advance multiple fields of science, and so much more. Learn more at restinggrounds.org. Now let's meet Robina and explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. On today's episode, we're here with Rabina Corton, who is a Buddhist nun, a teacher, and so, so much more. Thank you for joining us in the catacombs, Rabina. How are you today? Oh, I'm happy to be here, Jeremy, and I'm just fine. Thank you very much. Stuck here in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Why don't you tell me a little bit about your book? It's the book. It's actually one of my jobs is to edit books. I've been doing that all my life. Um, I joke that I'm on the propaganda side of things since I was a Catholic and then a hippie and then a communist and then a feminist, always on the propaganda side. That hasn't changed. So I, it's not my book per se, it's the book of one of my teachers and one of my jobs is to edit, to compile and edit their teachings. So this particular book, um, it's actually, an, it's called How to Face Death Without Fear, published by Wisdom Publications in Boston. And it's uh, it's a book of Lama Zoparimache and it's, it's a compilation of all the various you know, facts and figures about death according to the Buddhist view, especially the way that's articulated in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition coming from the great monastic university system where they study all this stuff in depth. And it's, it's, it's a handbook basically of how to, and it's all framed in terms of how to help your loved ones die. I mean, it's how to help all of us die, but it's, 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 it's obviously, you've got to talk, you can't talk to the dying person, you've got to do this and do that. So it's framed in terms of how to help your loved one die peacefully and the reasons and the logic within Buddhism for that, which of course implies how to live your life. So it's a very central point in Buddhist, in the Buddhist view. So what what path of Buddhism do you follow? Well, I mean, I'm labelled a Tibetan Buddhist, as people might or might not know. Buddhism began two and a half thousand years ago with this wonderful Indian man called, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha, the great Shakya, who came out of this amazing Indian tradition, which had been around for thousands of years. I've always quote this, but the Dalai Lama, he said, you know, it was these amazing Indians more than 3,000 years ago who were the ones that began the investigation into the nature of self. Well, Buddha came out of that tradition. And then since about two and a half thousand years, we've had now what's called Buddhism. So it, then it eventually went to China in about fourth century, I think. 
and then to Tibetan about the seventh century and all the other, most, mostly part of Southeast Asia. And not really hitting the West, I would say seriously, uh, until the Dalai Lama escaped from, you know, escaped from Tibet in 1959, when all the Chinese communists kind of took over his country. So it's only really very, become very solid and respected and studied and practiced in, I'd say, the last 50, 60 years in, in, in the modern culture. So I'm Tibetan Buddhist, I put it that way. For those who may not be aware, uh, do you want to give us a, a brief perspective on um, when China invaded Tibet and that whole situation? Well, yeah, I mean, it's um, it was, I suppose you could say from the, from the point of view of the Tibetans was part of China's, you know, kind of thing of taking over, being, you know, being, you know, imperialist, probably taking over various other parts of that part of the world, you know, and then, uh, and then eventually in 50, in 1950, I think, sort of making a very firm presence in Tibet. And then the inevitable happened in 59, there was an uprising among the Tibetans and the Dalai Lama escaped because he's just, you know, he's their boss and their king and their political leader, spiritual leader. He escaped and India very, Nehru very kindly accepted about 100,000 Tibetans. And since then, of course, Tibet's been, you know, continued to be under the Chinese communists and trying to suffocate the Buddhist approach, the Buddhist teachings, I suppose. And then since then, it's been, it grew, grew strongly in India and that part of the world. And then since I'd say the mid 60s, all the Westerners wandering off to Kathmandu for for hippie for enlightenment and drugs simultaneously i don't know why we confused the two but we did you know and then since then very strongly involved in the west so in your opinion how does tibetan buddhism look at death well it's the buddhist teachings more broadly it is all the buddhist teachings there are different traditions of buddhism that covers different components of this whole path to buddhist path to you know path path to what, to what they call enlightenment, or which is this state of perfection, which is the mind that becomes perfected, and the Buddhists would refer to it as being a Buddha. So, so the word Buddha, the term Buddha, the first part of the term, you know, the, the, the etymology is very tasty. Buddha implies the eradication from your own being completely of all ego and all fears and all delusions, and da implies the development to perfection of all your goodness. And the Buddhist approach, the, the different traditions, but the Mahayana Buddhist approach, which is practiced in various countries, including Tibet, would say that every being, every person has that potential. So the Buddhist view in general, you've got Buddha in, Buddhism in Thailand and Burma and those countries. You have Buddhism in Japan and China and Taiwan and Tibet. The different sections of Buddhism practice in the different countries. So the general Buddhist approach to death, the fundamental, the fundamental starting point is that, we, that consciousness or mind, Buddhism doesn't use a word called a soul. There's not this extra component. But the word mind or our consciousness, our mind, which for the Buddha is not physical, is beginning literally beginningless and endless okay different traditions say different things but the Mahayana view would say it's beginningless and endless which of course in from the materialist world is a nutty idea because you know first of all because we don't think there's a thing called a mind that's not the brain second we don't we, we definitely think we began in our mother's womb and when we drop dead we disappear and if you're a Christian you come from God and then you'll disappear and go to heaven there's different views right so the Buddhist view fundamentally and all the Buddhist philosophy and psychology is based upon this assumption and therefore the understanding of death and the way you incorporate that into your life is based on this assumption that your consciousness is this continuity of mental moments that goes back and back and will continue when you die. And then you've got, and second, you've got this marvelous potential. So if you're on this path, your aim is to gradually step by step, you know, turn yourself into this marvelous person, life after life after life. So within that framework, death is kind of a pretty fundamental um, role or an understanding of it and an encompassing of it has got a pretty basic, pretty fundamental role. Hmm. What are some ways people can prepare for their own death? Well, there's two, you know, there's one is the event itself. 
And then there's the actual how, what you start doing now. And I mean, I, I like to use ordinary examples. I think it's so easy for us to mystify what we think of as spiritual, put it up in the sky and seeing it as something you can't understand and can't prove, you know, that's not the Buddha's view because Buddha's not a creator. He's this regular guy who became this Buddha, presents his findings and says, okay, over to you guys. If you want to do it, it's up to you. Here's my methodology. So it's really important to put it in ordinary terms. We know very well, if you want to, you know, drive a car, you don't wait for your driving test to start practicing. You don't wait till the event. Oh, now I'll be okay on the day. No, you won't be. You've got to start driving now. So it's really exactly like that. So then the whole way, I mean, one of Buddha's key teachings, one of his first level of understandings, and sort of evident, he doesn't make this stuff up, he's not a creator. He, he gets us to see that we've got to realise that things are impermanent, things change. And the only reason he tells us that, and we look into our lives, we can't stand change. We, especially if things are going nicely, we set it in stone, we say, now I've got happiness, it's permanent, I'm forever. That's why we can't stand getting old, that's why we can't stand people dying, because we don't like change. So one of the most obvious, evident truths about life is that things change, things are impermanent. So the Buddha's idea is, we know it into Actually, but we don't know it experientially. So part of our daily practice and our meditations and everything, to get in touch with reality, please excuse me, things change, you know. And then so in terms of, and death is just a more radical kind of change, obviously, isn't it? So then living your life in the framework of knowing that things change already brings a profound shift because you're not living in denial of this horrible event. I mean, if you're a materialist, if your philosophy is materialism, which is pretty prevalent, in a, it prevails in our culture, you just leave it, you don't want to know about it because where are you going to go when you die? You're going to fall into a black hole. Nobody wants to go into a black hole. If you're a Christian, you look forward to heaven. If you're a Buddhist, you have this view that your consciousness continues. And this is the other crucial point, fundamentally in the Buddhist view. There's no concept of a creator in Buddhism. There's no one up there punishing, rewarding, or making you. We make ourselves. I mean, this view of karma comes into this, that everything we think and do and say produces the person we become. So we come into this life program with our past, and we go out of this life program with what we've done now, which produces our future. So the Buddhist approach is we're like in charge. Dalai Lama often says karma is like self-creation. So taking the view of your consciousness being not physical, not created by somebody else, that everything you think you can do and say produces the person you become. And because you want happiness and don't want suffering, then you, you, you start to learn to recognize things are changing. You live your life every day. You live good ethics. Why? Because ethical living brings you good results, not to mention helping others. So you want happiness. So therefore, the way you live your life is you realize things are changing. You live a good life knowing that when you die, you've programmed your next life. You're in charge. It's like you grow a garden. You've got to put the seeds in now. And you know the garden you want, which is a nice garden, it'll come. So this is, this is kind of roughly the approach in Buddhism of being a Buddhist. Very simple, down to earth. The first stages of practice. Hmm. So what do you feel happens in the afterlife or once someone dies? Okay, well, Buddhism doesn't use the word afterlife, and that's okay. I'm just saying that. So that, given that your consciousness continues, then every, and every millisecond of what you think and do and say programs you and produces your future. They use the analogy in Buddhism, it's a great one. Everything we think and do and say sows seeds, nothing goes astray. Everything we think and then do and say is, is the process that we go through that produces the person we become. So in one sense, just to quickly say, we, we get this when it comes to things like becoming a musician, becoming an IT expert, becoming a cook. You know that everything you think and do and say has to be accurate and appropriate according to the laws of cooking or math, and then you turn yourself into a good cook. But we don't think that when it comes to being happy and suffering. We think it's everyone else that does it to us. But Buddha says we do it to ourselves. So every, by living an ethical life, not killing, not stealing, by being compassionate and wise, you program yourself, <clears throat> which turns you into a happy, wise person, and you're also able to benefit others. Okay, so therefore... I mean, without doing too much detail, but I'll give some, the Buddhist view is that there are trillions of sentient beings. And the term in Tibetan 
Sem Chen, mind possessed us, not just us humans, we're like one tiny percentage. All the animals, all the creatures, there are many that the Buddhism would suggest that do exist that we can learn to eventually find that exist because we have the capacity, our mind has this power to do so, that many kinds of beings, and some are suffering and some are not. So speaking in a very simple way, the Buddhist view would say that there are, all, there are certain kind of lives that are intensely suffering, other kinds of beings, certain kind of lives that are not so suffering. So the very minimum, forget about becoming a Buddha, is that you want more, another happy life. At the very minimum, another decent happy life, so you can continue on your spiritual path and projecting and, you know, eventually becoming this enlightened being. So therefore, whatever, so the, necessarily the Buddha would say every consciousness, every ant, every dog, every human, and death is described in great detail in the texts. At the time of death, certain some of our karmic seeds, because nothing goes astray, everything we think and do and say, this is monkeys and dogs and ants too, everything is programmed in our mind and, the, and how we die determines the karmic seeds that are triggered from our past actions and then they produce our future life. <clears throat> Not more than a few weeks after you die, whether you're an ant or a dog or a human, you will take another life. That's the Buddha's recognition. That's the Buddha's presentation of reality. It's how it exists. There's all kinds of lives, subtle ones that sound like heaven. There are some that are like animal birth, other ones that are more intensely suffering, like spirit rebirth, ghosts and things, others like humans, all kinds of rebirths. And we create the cause for each of those. No one punishes us or rewards us. There's no, con no concept like punishment and reward in Buddhism because there's no creator. We do it ourselves. We create who we become. Um, That's the bottom line. You mentioned different types of rebirth. Do you want to yes. give a rundown on the different types? Oh, why not? <clears throat> this is, so the other thing to say, just as a background again for people, mm -hmm. um, the Buddha is this person who lived 2,500 years ago. As I said, he's not a creator. He doesn't posit a creator. There's no view like that at all in Buddhism. He was this regular person who doing this work unpacking and unraveling his own mind, removing from his own mind all the delusions, all the ego, all the nonsense, developing to perfection, including enormous wisdom. This mind of ours, the Buddha says, has got these more, far more subtle levels of cognition. And you can access these levels with this amazing technique these Indians invented thousands of years ago <coughs> called single-pointed concentration. <coughs> Mindfulness is like a, a, a product of that from just, you know, one of the results of that kind of meditation. So we've got these subtle levels of mind, the Buddha says, which is beginningless and endless. So <clears throat> the observation from the Buddha and anybody who's done this work will see there's, there's like this, we're in a realm of existence where there are like six suburbs, basically. The top suburbs, which are blissfully happy, are really equivalent to what the Christians and the Muslims would call paradise or heaven. But no one sends you there and they don't discuss God. This is a result of enormous virtue of goodness, of clarity, of kindness and, and helping others karmically. It's just a natural law. Then you've got the human realm, which is also the result of virtue, goodness, although it's a pretty crummy place and we do pretty heavy-duty things, but at least we've got access to our virtue and our goodness and our intelligence. And if we're wise and help, we can use that part of ourselves. Then you've got the animal realm, you've got spirits, which, and these are very suffering realms of existence, and then what they call hell realms, you know, and these are psychological states of mind that, come, that are the result of the actions of those beings that at one degree or another are intensely mentally suffering. So it's all consciousness and we all come along with a certain kind of mind, with a certain kind of condition, certain kind of experiences, either happy or suffering along this spectrum, including some level of physicality. There's, you know, something like that. There's realms of existence and they're all the result of the actions of those individual beings. Some happy, some not so happy. In your observations, why are people afraid to die? I know, it's a good point, isn't it? <clears throat> I think it's this, the way, the only way to understand it using the Buddhist model, the Buddhist model of the mind, when we look into the mind, and this is really 
you know, one of my teachers says, being a Buddhist is being your own therapist. The first level of practice is really about ethics and behavior. You don't kill, you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't bad mouth, you try and not harm sentient beings. You're the beneficiary of that because it turns you into a nice person. And of course, all the rats and cockroaches will be happy because you leave them alone. But basically the first level of practice is like for your benefit. And then you start to get to the next level of practice. I kind of call it junior school and high school. This is where you really get into the nitty gritty of the Buddhist uh, applying the Buddhist analysis of the way the mind functions. And it's very extensive in Buddhist psychology. I mean, these Indians before him, even before the Buddhists, and that's, I think it's pretty much unknown to us. These days it's becoming more known in the modern world among scientists, thinkers and scientists with the Dalai Lama's presence and all these amazing conversations that are going on in the world. Um, about the nature of the universe, the nature of mind, all the neuroscientists, this, you know, many marvellous communications, conversations happening now about reality. So the, the way to understand that is by understanding the mental consciousness. We've got the senses which dominate our lives, but that's, they're really kind of, they lead us up garden paths, our sensory experiences. We have to learn to become familiar with our mind be our own therapist. So we need to get this technique that's called concentration, which enables us to pay more attention and therefore to go to more subtle levels of our consciousness. And this is what I'm getting to. Buddha's model of the mind, he describes many neurotic states and many valid virtuous states of mind. And we need to, crucial job is to learn to distinguish between these. So within the neurotic dis, dis, distressing ones, you've got, he narrows them all down to three. And this, they, he calls them the three poisons. Let's call them the three toxic emotions. They sound cute from our psychological models. They sound kind of simplistic, but from the Buddhist view, they're kind of profound. We need to get to become familiar with these. So the root one of these is this primordial misconception deep in the bones of our being about the very, the wrong, it's a wrong sense of the very nature of who we are. It's fear-based, it's clinging, it's grasping, it's frantic. It, it brings a sense of a separate self, lonely, bereft, and miserable. Then that gives rise to this hunger, this emotional hunger, and that's called attachment, and this runs the show. And then when attachment doesn't get what it wants, because it's really like a junkie inside us that can only bear the nice things and only wants what I want every second, it's necessarily neurotic and painful and suffering, then when it doesn't get what it wants, there's anger. So these three actually dominate although this is not the way we think, of course, in our modern world. So the more we understand attachment, which is this frantic junkie in us every second, deep in our bones, that functions at a gross level, like when you're in love with somebody grasping at them when you really want something very badly and you have a panic attack when you don't get it, but it's underneath constantly. So that the, the, because we want only the nice things, when we get the nice things, this is the point now, when you get whatever it is, the thought of not having it anymore. And we know, I mean, even though I think it's embedded in our past experiences, although we've forgotten, that we know things change, but we can't stand the thought of that delicious thing going away. That's why we can't stand death. That's why we can't stand if my, if, you know, my boyfriend leaves me, even the thought of my boyfriend leaving you. So this deep grasping at things is permanent. We, we, we can't stand the thought of not having what we like. It's, it's just a terrible fear of things changing. And we're just, it's just ancient, ancient habit ancient habit because it's, and it's rooted in this attachment that is desperate to get the nice things and when you get it you want to hold on to it like it's eternity now i've found happiness now it'll last forever we say because we can't bear the thought of not having it so there's just these programmed conditioned tendencies that we've got one this and this one here is this panic at the thought of things changing what are some tips for releasing one's attachments well, thinking about how things are impermanent is a, is a most, it's a fundamental starting point, but it, it's a, it's a powerful technique when we can learn. I mean, when we can re okay, many times I've heard so many stories known personally and read about people who've been told they're going to, going to die 
got some disease. So the, the, the cathartic experience they go through to, to first to come to terms with the shock that what they assumed was permanent, their own self is not permanent. So then the, if the ones who really work hard at it, recognizing the reality that I am impermanent, the reality that death is definite and it's real and it'll happen. And then, then facing that fear and then that fundamentally changes the way they live their life because they realize every second is precious. That's really the most powerful teaching. When we, real, when we finally get in touch with the reality, it's not a religious thing you dump on top of life. Life is impermanent and we can see it from our own experience. We live in denial of it because we, we, don't, we don't analyze what's going on. So getting in touch with the reality that things change moment by moment, then you enjoy each moment as well as you can. But also, you can also face the bad things when they come because you know that they're not going to last either. So it's a very profound way to underpin becoming a happier, more stable, more kind of grown up person, recognizing the reality that things change, not in a kind of negative nihilistic way, you know? In other words, I always quote Nicole Kidman. I adore the woman, I'm not trying to criticize it, but I remember reading an interview with Nicole Kidman, you know, the actress, when she was with Tom Cruise in, in some magazine, when she said, we will be together until we're 80. Which, of course, is how we feel. And this is what's interesting. If you analyze that, when they, obviously their life was good. They had the beautiful husband, the children, the life. Everything was gorgeous. So because it's gorgeous today, we assume it'll last forever. There's no logic whatsoever. We know it from our experience, but we think it's that way because we can't bear to think another way. So when, you, so when he did leave her, and I'm just paraphrasing here. I'm not trying to be mean about the woman. I love her. When he did, I remember reading another article, she was in despair, you know, in fetal position. And this is what's interesting. When the good thing does change, because it will, and it doesn't mean that it might, it might last for 80, it might not. But when it does change, what happens is when the bubble bursts, we go crashing down to despair, and now we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, because now we think that despair is permanent. That's the suffering. So recognising things change, it gives you the courage to, you know, you don't go, oh, well, what if Tom dies today? What's the point of having a relationship? No, you, you are together right now with this life. Make the most of it. Use the best parts. Practice goodness. Don't be mean. Don't lie. Don't steal. And then when he does die or you die or he leaves you or whatever you'll still be okay so it's a powerful attitude actually to underpin having a much more stable more kind of grown-up steady life because reality is things change and death is absolutely different in your book you mention a good heart how do you define a good heart it's Rumi's book i mean i'm the editor it's okay though <laughs> Okay, so right. So good heart is really just a simple, sweet way of putting, okay, there's a nice analogy in Buddhism that a bird needs two wings, wisdom and compassion. So understanding about karma, becoming your own therapist, knowing your mind, learning to meditate, studying the mind, the, the intricate view that Buddha has about it. You know, um, all that's the wisdom wing. That's the nuts and bolts of the work that you do on yourself to turn yourself into this marvelous person. Then you've got the compassion wing. A bird needs two wings, wisdom and compassion. Compassion is the point. It's not enough that Dalai Lama says you've got to have wisdom. So when you kind of put yourself together, realize why you're suffering, you're sick of suffering, you start to change, live a good life, you, you're programming yourself in goodness and clarity and, and joy and contentment, that's what you're doing. Then you open your eyes and go, oh my God, we're all in the same boat. And then you can connect to others. But you know yourself when you're overwhelmed by your own misery and depression, you can't see past your own nose. So forget about a good heart. So good heart is a sweet term, often the Dalai Lama uses it, for compassion and love, empathy with others. And it's the major point. By the time you get rid of your own rubbish and you, you no longer have a separate sense of self, you've got this marvellous sense of joy and contentment in yourself. That's the fruit of the wisdom wing. And the fruit of the compassion wing is now you feel connected to others as if they were you and you only want to help them based on the wisdom that understands things. So it's a very logical kind of progression. 
So say someone's living a uh, unhealthy lifestyle, how can one find themselves, find their way to a good heart? Well, you've got to start to work with you on yourself first. I mean, an unhealthy lifestyle isn't just physical. It means depressed, angry, jealous, resentful, hopeless, not fair, poor me, don't know why things happen. I mean, join the universe here. We're all the same, not being mean about us. But the Buddhist approach is this is why we suffer. But our tragedy is we tend to think it's the weather that makes me suffer and it's COVID-19 that makes me suffer and it's the husband that makes me suffer and it's Mr. Trump that makes me suffer or whoever. And it's all true. The Buddha's not arguing that there aren't crummy things in the world. But he's simply, his emphasis is this true, but we can learn to know our mind intimately and change it. It's not set in stone. And that's the real source of becoming a more content and wise and fulfilled person. And then really it's becoming a more self-respectful person. If you give up attachment and anger and jealousy and depression, you're going to have more self-respect. You'll be a much more wise and fulfilled person. And inevitably you'll take care of yourself at every level. You won't eat badly. You won't abuse your body and mind. You'll have more self-respect. Then, on the basis of this, you then are able to recognize others are there. You've got to do the work on your own self first. You can't leap into a good heart while you're so miserable and you understand. It's not possible. Mm. You understand? From your research and understanding, so what happens at death? Okay, well, the way it's described, I'll, I'll go through the rough process. We've got to understand first, and this is coming from the, the Vajrayana, the more, the more advanced um, the more advanced view of the universe and the mind according to Vajrayana or Tantrayana in Buddhism. There's different levels of understanding. So this is where in, Buddha, in, in Tibet is where really all the different levels of Buddhism are fully developed. I think in some Vajrayana and the Tantrayana, there's more esoteric teachings, uh, all of which stem themselves from, from India, but this is not really practiced or taught or studied in any other countries where Buddhism is. So this is the Vajrayana is, and this is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an explanation of the physical world and the mental world, the mind and the body. So according to this system, and this is similar to the Chinese acupuncture, it's similar to the Ayurvedic system, and it's similar to how we used to be back in the Western culture, where we talked about the, the physical matter is made of the four elements. This is a crucial thing to understand. That's still the system here. And this is the Tibetan medical system, you know? So there's a, the, the, the physical world is made of the four elements, and then there are minds, consciousnesses, trillions and trillions of mind streams, they say, consciousnesses. So this view would say that all minds are inextricably linked to their own set of the four elements. So for example, you go to your Tibetan doctor, like your Chinese doctor, she'll feel your pulses and she'll realize there's a certain, because they talk about a subtle level of body, what a subtle physical body, it's a subtle, 72,000 subtle channels through which are coursing all these different prana or wind energy. And this is the, the, the basis of their 10, 12 years of study, you know, and the understanding of these different winds. And this is similar to the Chinese. Uh, these wind energies are connected to all our different states of mind. So you go to your Tibetan doctor, and this is, this is totally relevant to what I'm getting to the death. I haven't forgotten this time. Um, your Tibetan doctor will feel your pulses and she'll feel an imbalance of certain wind energies and she'll know that's connected to your attachment. That's why you're having panic attacks and anxiety. She'll know other wind energies connected to your anger. So she'll recognize the problem. So there's this intimate relationship between these internal subtle wind energies and the mind. So they're inextricably linked. So... Okay, the death process, according to this Vajrayana model, is described in terms of eight stages, and it really it's a gradual deconstruction of the components of a person. So the first stages, the earth, each, each of the stages, various things cease to function. And this is all dealt with in great depth, and one learns to meditate on this, sort of to become familiar with the process. And the greatest meditators can actually go through this process of death, staying in complete control so they can meditate for days and days and days after they die. I'll explain. So we've got gross consciousness, subtle consciousness, and very subtle consciousness. Then you've got the gross level of physicality and the subtle and the very subtle linked to those states of mind. 
So the first four stages of death, the earth element ceases and certain internal capacity to remember things, etc., etc. I can't go into detail now. Then that ceases. And by the time you get earth, water, earth, water, fire, and air, by the fourth stage, you've, you've forgotten who you are. You don't remember anybody else. There's no distinction between your feelings. You can't, all your senses are gone. And that's when the West says we're dead. You've stopped breathing there, okay? But that's just your gross consciousness that has ceased. And your mind is still there, but at a subtler level. So this is, so then now, this is why in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the Vajrayana, you would not usually touch the body for three days because the mind can still be there and then it will grow through this process gradually and then eventually get to the very subtle level and then at a certain point, it will leave the body. That's when death occurs and there are ways of judging and assessing this. It's obviously more subtle. And it's kind of interesting, by the way, you know, when I was doing this book of Rimaches, editing the book, I read a book by an American medical journalist called Teresi, Dick or Nick Teresi, called The Undead, which is really fascinating. It's not about zombies. He's a, he's a marvelous, wonderful fellow. He's a medical journalist in the States. And there's all the contradictions and obstacles and problems that are now arising as a result of this, you know, of giving organs, taking organs at the time of death. Contradictions and problems coming, for example, from, you know, we know around the world over the centuries, there were reports of people coming back to life. Of course, in our materialist model, it's in the too hard basket, so we just leave it alone. We can't describe it. So, and, and that's even many times this is occurring. He had a whole chapter. He said he's, himself, he's atheistic about it. He just has no view. He's agnostic about it. There's um, a whole chapter on people who have out-of-body experiences, you know. So it's, it's really people are questioning their assumptions. But I think it's marvellous because the Buddha's view is you're not dead by the time you stop breathing. That's just your gross consciousness. So anyway, your gross consciousness stops. And then the next ever more subtle levels. And we can describe it as too, too much to say, but you go through this process and up to three days later, it can be sooner, your consciousness, your very subtle consciousness, which is, which is carrying all the karmic imprints and all the things you've ever done and thought and said, will then leave the body. But at this time of you about to stop breathing, and before that, already the process of the karmic seeds that will determine your next life have already been triggered and already your program, in your case, seven weeks or so before you found your way to your mummy's womb, your mummy's fallopian tube, already the karmic seeds that produce Jeremy to be a human, all his tendencies, his experiences, all the way karma ripens, are already triggered. And that occurs during that process. So the whole point is, and the essence of this book, is given that, that as Lama Zopa says, Given the Buddhist view that at the time of death is when the next life is determined, and given that you want your loved one, not to mention yourself, to have a decent life and it's in our hands, and, the, and given that when the mind is peaceful, it's virtuous, and that can trigger virtuous karmic seeds that will produce a decent human life. We can, we can deduce we must have had a, past, a decent past death because here we've got a human body and it's like winning a lottery. So given all that, he said, if you want to help anybody in this life when they need you most is at the time of death. It's quite a literary technical thing. Because, I mean, it is a fearful experience for most people. As he said, and it's true, most people die with fear because we can't stand the thought of not being me. The thing we're most attached to is me, this package, you know. So this desperate attachment, unable to bear the thought of not being me. So we need to help the person navigate that by being loving and kind, give them a good environment, a good, a conducive environment. If they're Buddhist, you'd say Buddhist prayers and mantras. If they're Christian, whatever you do to be conducive, to help the person be virtuous so the virtuous karmic seeds can be triggered so they're programmed to get another decent human life. That's the whole approach. That's the attitude. So to help to navigate that process so they can be peaceful and virtuous. That's the essence of it. And then the mind will leave eventually after a couple of days. And then it goes into this intermediate state. And they describe this in great depth as well. This is exactly like a dream state. 
because in, you know we have sleep and this process of death as it's described in the Vajrayana is exactly the same process physiologically and psychologically as the process of sleep meaning we've got gross consciousness and when you stop breathing or when you go to sleep it's, that's your gross level ceased you know your senses aren't functioning and then you wake up in this weird dream state that's your subtle consciousness and then eventually you wake up in the next morning in, in the same body well death goes through the same process but it's more dramatic when you stop breathing then you go to this and then eventually you leave the body and you wake up in this kind of a dream state they call it the intermediate state or the bardo but it's very similar to a dream and then eventually when you come out of that you wake up in another body and you've got a new life coming. So it's, it's all described in the text in great detail. And a, a Buddhist, especially Vajrayana Buddhist, a Tibetan Buddhist, would become familiar at least intellectually with this process and meditate on it. So you get familiar with it. It's like getting familiar with your driving test. And when you get there, you won't be afraid, you know? And you, even if you don't have much awareness, like the great yogis, you'll at least die with a happy mind and a virtuous mind and programming your mind to go to another decent human body so you can keep on bopping on your spiritual path. Uh, what are some tips, some ways to kind of cope or meditate on one's own death. It's all there. All these these are the instructions. All this this these are the instructions I'm giving, and they're in the book. There, they're all in the book. It's a bit. I mean, it's, it's meditating on these points we have just touched on fairly lightly. It's too complex to go through the whole thing. But okay. that it. But it's, but familiarity with it first is clearly the obvious thing. The driving test is such a dumb example. If you're not driven in the past and have confidence on the road, you will not pass your driving test. So death the same. One of the meditations we do every day you know, is, and it's also connected to other more advanced kind of practices, meditations, it's all mentioned in the book. So in the Western world, uh, doctors, uh, nurses, they, uh, they recognize one's death by perhaps um, one's not breathing anymore, one's heart has stopped. So how do Buddhists, how does the Eastern world recognize death? I don't know about the Eastern world, but I can tell you the Vajrayana Buddhists. I mean, if you ask a Zen Buddhist, they might not answer the same way. There are different Buddhist traditions over the world. This is from the more esoteric Buddhist teachings known as the Vajrayana or the Tantrayana, which are only really extant in Tibet. That's all I can talk from, that perspective, okay? This is one of the interesting points about this book of the, about the undead. Okay, I'll, t I'll tell an example in there, which I found very fascinating. The Buddhist view, like I said, would be when you stop breathing, there's no evidence of heart or brain. That's true. You're brain dead. There's no question. But this Buddhist view is that the subtler, your subtler level of your consciousness is still there. So now, because the death process is exactly the same physiologically and psychologically, it's, it's the same thing that occurs to the body and mind as sleep. Many people know, for example, in, in dream, for example, we, we have dreams. That's your subtle mind, which is more kind of weird for us, but we can learn to, 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 to use it and harness it, but more powerful, more capable. So the thing is, for example, many examples, and I know for myself, one time I did a retreat years ago, and we, a long retreat, and then at a certain period, we have our nap, it was in India, we had our nap at lunchtime. And I remember having these, what they call, the world calls lucid dreams, which is just subtle consciousness. But I remember being vividly clear. I could hear all the sounds going around. I heard all the conversations. I heard what was going on in the kitchen. So my ear consciousness had ceased. But one subtle mind, when it's more powerful, can be conscious of what's going on. So this is a common experience in the world. And this book, this, this, this Teresi did, he had a whole chapter, as I mentioned, on what I think they call out of body, out of body experiences. So what happens literally is this, you, you, you know, you're put under anesthetic, that's like going to sleep, that's equivalent to death, but not as dramatic. But we know that your senses have ceased, and you're unconscious, you know, you're unconscious. But lots of people report 
being floating above their body and observing exactly what's going on. He had a whole section of this, a whole chapter. And of course, as he said to himself, he has no idea if it's right or wrong, but he's just reporting. And then he said, of course, most doctors are cynical about it because it doesn't fit with the view of the brain, right? The brain is unconscious. How can you be seeing things? But he, he, he joked and had one, he quoted one particular woman who had to have such a radical procedure that they had to virtually make her dead in a sense before they did the operation. But she reported the most vivid out of body experience and they couldn't deny her experiences. She quoted exactly all their conversations. She quoted all the things they did and the music they played. No one can deny this. So this fits exactly with this Buddha's view. That's your subtle consciousness. Now, most people, when we dream, we don't always remember our dreams. Many people don't have no noticing what's going on, but many people report all over the world out of body experiences. We call them astral traveling. This is your subtle consciousness people floating above their own body observing things you're not really leaving your body but the experience of subtle mind is more powerful more potent than the gross conceptuality and sensory consciousness this is our subtle consciousness and it, we can see the reports all over the world that fits exactly that's your subtle consciousness so you so that can equally mean when you're lying there in your bed dead you're like in that dream experience I had, your subtle mind was to be, could, could be aware. So one of the key things when you die in Buddhism, once you stop breathing and you keep the body in the room for three days, you do practices and things, you completely keep it silent and perfect because you can still, the mind is still there, but it'd be very distressing to have noise and laughter and stuff going on. So, so this, this, so this, all these people in the, with their operations. Now one fascinating experience in this book, he reported one woman, who, has, who was giving her organs, she, there she was, they're keeping her breathing, her, you know, her heart was beating, her body was toasty and warm. They say she's dead, but the Buddha's view is, as Lama Zopa says in the book, you can't possibly be dead if your mind can, if, you're, if, you're, if your body can still function and the warmth can still be there, it implies the presence of consciousness in the way Buddhism talks. So there's this interesting experience that he quoted in the book, that this one woman, in, when they took her to the operating table, they keep her breathing while they do the thing. They got the circular saw, ready to cut her from head to toe. And the woman who was monitoring the heartbeat noticed the heartbeat that second went from 100 to 200 beats a minute. Anxious about. Well, to explain it from the Buddhist perspective is very simple within this model, that obviously she was one of those people who was having an experience of floating above her body. She's not actually dead. But she, her subtle mind is aware and she's observing them and she knows she's still her. And she's going, oh my God, what the hell are they doing? Don't they know I'm not dead yet? They're about to cut me open. So of course her heart would go to 100, 200 beats a minute. So this is a really interesting point. These experiences can be, I mean, he's got these in this book. And I remember one doctor, I mentioned this already, I think, I can't remember. Yeah, I did. One doctor in this in this business of giving of organs, I can say with certainty now that consciousness is not a function of the brain. I don't know what it is, but this much I can say. So I think these things coming out now and people, it's forcing us to question our assumptions. So when you when you can recognise your mind can still be there, and it will take three days for it to leave, then that's a whole different discussion, a whole different approach, isn't it? So describe to us the ideal environment for someone to die. Okay. This is this is your mouse, your pussycat, or your grandmother, or a baby for that matter. Well, unless the baby, yeah, but further with your grandmother or a person who's more conscious, and especially if they're dying slowly, okay, then you've got some control over it. One of the most powerful things is 
because it's a scary experience. And the point is because from the Buddhist perspective, as you're getting sicker, your mind's getting more fragile. You're getting more sensitive. You're moving more away from your gross consciousness, which is your sensory and your conceptual, to your more subtle level where you're naturally much more sensitive. So therefore, the most crucial thing would be to have it to be in the most beautiful environment, peaceful, and if, as well as when you're still conscious, with beautiful views. I mean, one of the tragedies of sick rooms and certainly of hospitals, they're noisy, dingy, dark, messy, as if it doesn't matter. But the mind is so sensitive, especially when you've still got your senses working, it needs to be peaceful, beautiful, conducive. Everything in that room should be for the benefit of that person, not just junk there because it suits you. So, for example, if the person's a Buddhist, give that example. That means whatever, because we've got the senses. So wherever you see, if you like, say, you like you're a Buddhist, you've got certain teachers, you like the look of the Buddha, and you, you have beautiful images. And every time you see them, it makes your mind happy. You, you'd have sounds of mantras or prayers if that's what you'd like. You've got to, you know, you've got you tailor it to the person's needs. You'd have only the people in that room who, who who understand what's going on, who can make the person feel calm and content, not the crying, moaning people, or the kids demanding daddy to do his will, or the dramas that people bring into a death death room is just so appalling for the poor dying person it's everything's got to be for that person's sake to be peaceful to uplift them to be kind and to be loving this is can't be stressed enough it's the same for your cat and your dog i mean our common thing in our culture we, we just go and get the poor vet to kill them you know we put all these polite words to it but it's exactly the same thing get that little pussy cat don't be freaked out about it put it in a safe place let it hear mantras and prayers this can be so powerful for its mind to help its mind calm down and make it feel safe and secure and allow it give it some drugs to help its pain but allow it to die peacefully because when you die peacefully this kind of it's it, you know unless you've really got incredible wisdom you don't know what's going to happen we're not, we're not you know don't play russian roulette with their mind because the buddhist view is it will continue and the way you die and the peaceful mind they're going to have will help them get another decent human rebirth so mm -hmm. it should be like that and that's why in a way with all due respect to wonderful doctors and nurses hospitals are about the worst place to die it needs to be ideally where you can control the situation, control who comes and goes, but peaceful, not much noise, you know. And even when they're unconscious, because they can be aware, you'd still even then have mantras and prayers and very beautiful sounds. So it makes the mind peaceful and calm. That's the most fundamentally important point. Because when the mind is peaceful, when you start the death process, and this actual process of this deconstruction usually happens a couple of hours before you stop breathing. So that's the really crucial time when the mind should be peaceful and conducive, the environment conducive. That's mm. the point. What should the living be thinking and considering while they're in the room with a dying individual? That you're there for their sake. Mm. That's it. You're there for their sake. This is their gig, you know. But we so, insert, because of our own grief and sadness, we insert our own selves so totally into the experience. I remember when a person, one of my colleagues, I asked them to just proofread the book when the manuscript was ready. And they said, well, where's the chapter on grief? I said, that's not the job here. Grief is another discussion. Grief is ours. This is for the sake of the dying person. And in the Buddhist view, of course, as you'll see in that book, if you go into it, uh, those series of, of what, to, what to do. The first part's all about the background of what, what karma is and death and how it happens. Then the actual main advice is what to do the weeks and months before a loved one dies. Next section is what to do cl close to the time of death, what to do the hours before death, what to do at the time of death, what to do the days and months, weeks after the time of death. This also is major, major. And the book itself is really two-thirds of like 87 different distinct practices you can do. But it's at the different stages what to do when, including after the person has died, including even first the next three days to keep the body there, and then after that, once they've been buried or burned, then even there's so many practices you can do for the sake of their consciousness to help them get a decent human, to continue on their path for the next 49 days. Mm.
Um, so it's for their sake. It's their gig. And then you're, and keep your own grief away. Cry, weep, but outside, please. Don't dump it on that poor person. Mm. Everything that goes on in that room, everyone who's in that room, it should be for the sake of the person. Help mm. them be peaceful and die peaceful. Uh, is there any way in those last moments of life that the dying individual can get rid of any negative karma? As you're doing it continuously, as long as you're peaceful and virtuous, then that's exactly what's happening. Because you're, you're, you're nourishing that part of yourself, which at least allays the negative karma. But if you start freaking out, that'll just kind of rise up and make you panic-stricken and unhappy, you know? And so it's not a moralistic idea because there's no punishment and reward here. It's just the way we are, our minds are. But, of course, the experience of suffering itself is the purification of karma. Of course it is. What should the living do around the, the time of the death of the individual? Death being the, um, the stopping of the beating of the heart, stopping of breath. Well, that's what I've been describing sort of roughly. When If you're there in the room and this person, let's say the person's a Buddhist, then you're doing the Buddhist prayers that they wanted you to do. You've discussed mm -hmm. it in advance and you do not interfere. You do not touch them. You don't start weeping and going on and being all self-centered. You're there to just to say the prayers and help the person stay stable and help them. And then the next three days, it's like a holy room. You'd come in, you'd even, you know, you'd even do 24 hours a day, people coming in and taking turns saying prayers and mantras because the consciousness is still there. Totally for their sake. Everything's for their sake to help their mind purify their mind and purify negative karma and then continue on to the next life. So how do you perceive organ donation and even full body donation? Exactly, exactly. Well, this is in, in the book here, one of the scenarios, what to do if your loved one gives their organs. Like, what to do if, you, if, you, if your loved one dies at home? What to do if your loved one dies in hospital? What to do if your loved one dies suddenly? And what to do if your loved one dies gives, gives their organs? And there's, a, and there's advice in there. And as, as a discussion is, you know, this, um, uh, when I questioned, I told Rimache about this book I'd read and explained that what people do and, the, you know, all that. He said, well, yes, of course, it's a, it's a topic that of course it's the, the Buddhist view is that when you stop breathing, you're not dead yet. And that's not, a, so, okay, there's two things. He explained what happens, how the mind isn't gone yet, and you've got to be very careful. And like that example I gave, and I told him about this, about that woman whose heartbeat went from 200, up to 200 beats a minute. What the implication of that is, because her mind was still in the body, then that could freak her out and could change the karma and cause her to go to suffering rebirth. It's a very kind of technical, mm -hmm. intricate process, you know. So I told him that. So he just discussed it. Be very careful about this. But the other aspect is, and as he says in the book, it's amazing that anyone would want to give their organs. It's so compassionate. So in general, he said, because in general in Buddhism, your motivation for what you do determines the character of the karma you create. So having an aspiration to want to benefit others and give your heart or your liver, this is an amazing way to die. And you'll die a very happy death in general. And it'll be very excellent for your virtuous karma. But this is example is that woman had a good motivation she died of the happy mind maybe but then she's on the operating table and she's seeing that they're cutting her cutting her organs out so she freaks out so it can help reverse the process so it's just it's just tricky for the person so it's really important just to um organs is marvelous but it's it, it can be tricky if you can't be certain and we can't that the person will be conscious when they cut the organs out conscious at the subtle level you understand so it's a tricky thing it's difficult to say it's a marvelous thing to do so from my own point of view having read that book and having thought about it myself 
I, you know, of course it's marvellous. And, and he was quite, this journalist is a marvellous man and he praises, the, you know, the incredibleness of this, of this. I mean, the Buddhist view is marvellous to do that, to want to give your organs. But at the same time, we all know human nature, ego and arrogance and elitism and, you know, he, he, this man writing this book, he's a, he's a materialist, he's an atheist. He was quite cynical about the arrogance and the manipulation of the system and misusing people and the elitist and the amount of money involved. He was quite cynical about it. And he's, that's his job, it's his area. So I thought that was interesting, you know. He talked about many people when they're being bullied into giving the organs. I've even heard now in Europe, especially many countries, the law now is that you give your organs unless you want otherwise. So it's really quite dominant. So it's, it's really kind of manipulative, I think, quite shocking. And the thing is, it's made to look the most grand thing in the universe. And it is special. I know people who've got organs, from, and it's so remarkable to do it. But because we're so obsessed in the West, I'd suggest, this is my view, that this is all there is, just this body and this life and that's it. But if you have the Buddhist view, death is nothing wrong, old and sick and, and old age is nothing wrong. It's just part of life. But we, we want to live in denial of it and keep everything to be perfect, you know. So it can easily be misused. So it seems to me to want to give your organ is marvellous, but why not give your whole body? I mean, to the young doctors, to cut you all up and learn things, that's equally marvellous. And the Buddhists usually get another body anyway. It's not being cynical. Marvellous if you can get a new organ, but it's, it can be made something, it can be misused, is, is mm. my suggestion. And this man himself in the business, he was suggesting this. So planning one's death uh, sounds ideal, but what happens around a sudden death? That's right, exactly. It depends on how you are. See, the, the only way to understand what I'm saying here about death, what happens, is if you have a, some sense of the understanding of this law, this natural law of karma, the way Buddhism describes it. And, it's, you know, it's, because we're so used to thinking of religion as just something made up by somebody and then squashed upon you that you're supposed to believe, there's nothing like that in Buddhism because Buddha's not a creator. He's not asking you to believe a single word he's saying. He says, this is what I found to be true from my own observation and here's my methodology and it's up to you if you want to follow the same thing and you want to find the same truth for yourself, you know? And as the Dalai Lama says, if the Buddha's wrong, you'll find out, then say thanks a lot, mate, and you'll give him up. Nothing wrong. So the only way to understand why the death process and the way we describe it is by understanding how karma works, which is, again, like I said, every millisecond what we think and do and say is programming us every second. And we know we've got neurotic, fearful, eye-based, unhappy states of mind, and we know we have spacious, virtuous, appropriate states of mind. We kind of know that. So when the virtuous, appropriate ones are, are, are prevalent, you're peaceful, you're relaxed. And at the time of death, when you're peaceful and relaxed, that can help trigger a virtuous karmic seed, which can then give you a decent human rebirth, another good human rebirth, for example, we keep on practicing. But if your mind's freaking out, we all know that your mind becomes constricted, fear takes over, you've got no common sense, you can't make any decisions, and you're a drama, you're a nightmare, you know? So if you're dying suddenly in the middle of eating your soup and you're having a shouting at your wife, I'm sorry, you're not going to be so cool. Your poor mind will freak out. It'll trigger a negative karmic seed and boom, you get a suffering rebirth. But if you're dying peacefully, if you're peaceful at the time you die suddenly, you're feeling joyful or loving or compassionate, this is the perfect way to die. So the ideal way to die is peaceful and virtuously. But if you're going to die suddenly, you can't guarantee it. So the lesson is practice every minute, you know. Mm. Understand? That's yeah. the idea. Okay, so sorry, if you do die suddenly, it's an interesting point. The Buddhist one, what happens is... We freak out, don't we, when someone dies. We panic. We call the ambulance. I remember a friend of mine in Santa Cruz. The whole family were Buddhists, mother, uh, mother, father, and daughter. 
And the man, Paul, he had a really bad heart and he begged his wife that if I have a heart attack, do not call the ambulance. Just let me die, get me, say the prayers, bring the daughter and do the practices and prayers that they all wanted to do, you know. But she panicked. She panicked. She called the ambulance. So they dragged him off to the hospital and we went there. The daughter and me went there at four in the morning and did the prayers he wanted us to do. He'd agreed. And you could tell he was really distressed, all these things keeping him alive, you know. We knew he didn't want that. So we did the various practices and then they pulled the plug. So then... And then, you know, um, we, we the, the hospital was very kind. They put him very gently in the ambulance and took him to the mortuary. And then we spent the next two days being there with him, doing the prayers and practices he wanted, you know. So that was, that was so the ideal would have been, don't panic. That means you've got to thought about it before. You've got to be educated. Don't panic. And, but it's difficult because if you think you can bring them back to life, of course you're going to try, isn't it? So it's not an easy one. But for yourself, it's best to always be virtuous, but you can be. It's hard. And if you're going to help a person who's died suddenly, at least educate yourself in advance both medically but also with this process so without having a panic attack you can observe what's going on and make some wise decisions to help the person in the appropriate way mm. are there any practices to maintain after one's death for the loved ones i believe Massive, you... yeah plenty lots of them lots of them lots of practices to do traditionally they would talk about the next 49 days seven weeks because in the in the text it describes once the consciousness so it you stop breathing, can be up to three days before the mind leaves the body, and then that period after that, for up to seven weeks, the mind is in this kind of like a dream state, intermediate state between lives. And then after, so traditionally, you can do some various practices and things for seven for seven weeks. Many people you can do it continuously, but that's tradition. That's how mm -hmm. we do it. Uh, where can people learn more about those traditions? The practices? Yeah. yeah the... In this book. Uh, They're all there. Great. The two-thirds of the book is the 87 practices, sutras and prayers and mantras and visualizations and meditations. All, they're all in the book, 87 of them, all numbered. They're all there, all the things you can do incorporating. the Two-thirds of the book is those practices. And mm -hmm. the third, third of the book is the advice, what to do, when, how. Then the practices themselves are in the back of the book. So what about death inspired you to uh, uh, create that book? I, I, it's just, I'm a Buddhist. It's my job. 45 years, I'm a Buddhist. And he's my teacher, and it's one of the fundamental teachings in Buddhism. So I, I edit books. So it's one of his teachings that he wanted it done, so I compile the teachings and put it together. How can people generally be inspired after reading the book? What do people usually get from it? Well, I mean, if, if people want the details about how it works, if you are a Buddhist, it's very helpful. It gives you the, it, the whole book started, actually. The teaching that is the source of this book, back in 2001, I think, Lama Zopa was teaching at our centre in France, and he mentions this. I mentioned this in the preface, um, in his introduction, in his preface, and my preface I wrote, that he, he was doing this particular teaching, and then suddenly one of his students came and said, my father died suddenly and I didn't know what to do. So this whole approach to death and these practices is really is integrated into all of our practices and studies if you're a Buddhist. So I think initially was quite surprised. Then he realised this is what happens. We know these things but we don't practice them properly. So when your daddy dies, you get a shock and you don't know what to do. So then he, then he switched directions and then he started to give commentary, which is the, the source of this book. So I think what comes from it, if you're a Buddhist, you want to learn the facts and figures of what to do. But second, which is for, for your sake to help your mouse or your dog or your mummy, but it's crucially for yourself. But the other thing is I, I notice when I use this book as a basis for many courses and retreats that I do all over the world, just one of the ones I do, 
my main job to teach these days. I notice that lots of people who aren't Buddhists come, and people seem to respect the Buddhist view. You know, it's interesting. Lots of Christians. I remember some teaching. Some funeral home directors came. People who are interested in death in general, and many because many of these instructions can be very helpful to a Christian as well. You can adjust it, adapt it to your own beliefs if you like. You know, mm. but it's, I mean, it's, I think it's rare to have a system that's kind of respected that describes a process in detail, especially death, which is so esoteric to us, you know. So I think it would be very helpful. And the, but the fundamental one for me is the, is the wake-up call. We're all impermanent. And, and, and get the, get the wake-up call and start to live my life, change myself. And that's what I said before when I've noticed many people who've been given the wake-up call who get cancer think they're going to die. It demands they confront the reality. What is the purpose of life? What the hell am I doing here? And the wake-up call is don't waste your precious life. Don't waste this day. Make the most of it. Develop yourself and help others. That's the bottom line. And then when you do die, you'll be cool. Mm. You'll be okay. You'll be ready, you know. Uh, have you read or do you have any uh, opinions on the Tibetan Book of the Dead? That's just one particular text that for some reason captivated the West. It's one of thousands of texts from one area of one section of one esoteric approach to something. It's really just for some reason that text fascinated the West and got into the West. But it's not something most Tibetans you ask them about they will never have heard of it. Uh, so you mentioned you do some events. Do you want to talk about what kind of events you do? What do you mean events? I just teach. It's my job. I'm part of an organisation. There's about 150, 160 centres around the world of my teachers. And the last, well, the last 11 years, I mean, before that I was running this non-profit helping people in prison, including on death row. And before that, editing. And I've been editing and writing books all this time, editing books. But the last um, 11 years, I've been full-time on the road. I don't have a home, just full-time, going to about 80 of our centres every year teaching. So that's what I teach. I teach teaching retreats and courses and weekend courses and evening talks around the world. So right now I'm stuck in Portland, but I'm still continuing to teach on Zoom, you know, so it's just have to walk two steps to my desk instead of climbing on an airplane. Uh, uh, what can people, what kind of courses, what kind of retreats would people expect from you? On Buddhist philosophy and psychology, about the mind, about karma, about what I'm talking about, about all the extents of the, the entire Buddhist path to enlightenment of the Buddhist philosophy and psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, primarily during COVID-19, you're doing more like uh, online, maybe retreats, online learning, lectures the same, and stuff? The same I, I, I organized my schedule a year in advance. So by about October, I had all 2020 organized and all my flights bought. So then, of course, I got stopped in my tracks. So I'm doing exactly the same courses that I'd organized, but all on Zoom. The mm. same thing. It's all on my website. You can see my schedule there. Mm. But instead, you know, uh, working with people in death row, you can imagine that would be pretty traumatic, wouldn't it? I mean, that's something I've really learned about the, the horror of that system in this country, you know, in other countries as well, but still this country. I mean, you know, a friend of mine in prison, um, just awful, the terrible stories you hear, you know, how very hard it is to prepare for your death if you're on death row. So I've got a friend in Kentucky who's a devoted Buddhist. I've known him for 25 years since we started this prison project. That was in about 95, Mitchell, and he's a very devoted, lovely human being. He came to terms with his life. He's on death row. He was in some shootout. You know, he's not a monster. He wasn't a psycho. Just in a shootout, and guns exist. We've got drugs and guns. People are going to die. You know, so he's in. He's on death row in, in Kentucky, getting close to his death date. So of course he thinks about it very seriously, and he's a Buddhist, so he understands all this stuff. But the last conversation I had with him when I went to visit, you know, was exactly how he would be at the time. They're going to put the hood, you know, put all the electrify his body, put the sponge on his head, put the hood on his body. And so he was discussing what's the best way to think. When I look into the eyes of this person, like he's 
six inches from his face while he's doing this to him, this guy whose job it is, should I try and have compassion for him or should I try and just do my own meditation? So that was his discussion about how to prepare for death. It's kind of intense, you know. And so he was, and he's a very wonderful man. He's really in touch with death because there he is on death row. He can't avoid it, you know. But it was terrible stories. I mean, a friend of mine on, who was on death row over 17 years, she's well known. She's written a memoir. Sonny Jacobs, and she's out now, and she runs retreats for people who've been wrongly accused and have been exonerated. She was seven, with her husband, 17 years in prison, accused of murdering two policemen. They were exonerated eventually, but the husband was executed. He was executed. She was in prison, and she went to the execution, and his head turned, you know, burst into flames. Can you imagine the nightmare? The nightmare. It's just so medieval. It's unbelievable. I'm quite shocked by it, you know. So shocking. And Mitchell, because he was sentenced in the 80s, that he's, he's supposed to be electrocuted. That's the law, you know. It's just so bizarre. So my friends on death row, they're really facing reality. They're accepting the reality and they're making – Mitchell's a happy, marvellous human being, you know. He's been there for 35 years on death row, getting close to his death date. He's takes, he's got a wonderful practice. He looks, takes care of his other 40 friends on death row. He's a lovely human being, making the most of his life within the fact that he's going to die. Like the rest of us, there's no difference. We're all going to die. It's a question of time. That's all. Oh, so what inspired you to become a nun? Well, I was born of a Catholic, one of seven kids. That happened to be the family I got born into, but my own tendencies. I mean, I was just always thinking about the meaning of life and God. And when I went, when first went to Mass, I sort of felt like a, a revelation. I recognised the priest. I decided that was my job, you know. So they joked and said, of course, I can't be a priest. I'm not a boy. So then I was about 11 or 12. I was naughty, really the naughtiest kid in the family, seven kids. But I was always thought about the meaning of life and God and Our Lady and the saints and everything. And then when I was 12, I was on my knees begging my mother, let me be a, a Catholic nun, like St. Therese, this little Carmelite nun who suffered for God, you know, one of these serious little nuns. And, my, and I, I remember I cried when she said no. Well, 20 years later, she cried when I said I was going to be a Buddhist nun, you know. <laughs> anyway, the point is, I think, so I was just, by the time I got to 19, I decided it was time for God. Goodbye, God. Hello, boys. So then I got to be, it was in the, the 60s. I went to London. So for about 10 years, really full on intensively involved in, I suppose I didn't put it that way, thinking, trying to find the meaning of life. I mean, I don't want to sound so holy. But first I was a radical hippie, extreme hippie, and then gradually communist, and then black politics at the time of the Black Panthers in the 70s. There was a group in London we ran, and then feminist politics, all the time moving through these different political views, trying to find the way to understand the world, you know. So I, I wanted happiness. I wanted sex, drugs and jazz, not rock and roll. But I kept moving from group to group, idea to idea, philosophy to philosophy, looking, in a sense looking, but just moving organically through my views, questioning, analysing. Didn't ever want to get married. Didn't ever want to have babies. I wanted happiness but not babies and not partners. The idea of living in the one house, in the one bed with one person, I'd, get, I'd hyperventilate. I couldn't stand the thought of it. I wanted freedom and truth, as I say that to myself, more than anything. So I suppose I got to the time about 29 and I was doing martial arts and I'd exhausted all options of who to blame on the planet. When I was a Catholic, I blamed all the kind of non-Catholics. And when I was a communist, I blamed all the rich people. When I was a kind of radical lefty in the black political movement, blamed all the white people. And then I was a feminist, I blamed all the male people, quite literally. So I was exhausted all options. And then bumped into these Buddhists and they said, you should start looking at your mind, Ravina. That's where the causes are. So I've been doing that for whatever it is, 14, four years or something. So it's a fairly a natural evolution in my own progress, you know. Mm. Was there anything specifically that you've learned through your progression to Buddhism that really stuck with you and you learned along the way? 
the first one that really struck me that when I went to my first course was a one month intensive retreat with Lama Zopa, my teacher, um, whom I met first in Australia, 76, when I was 31 or 32 or something. I didn't understand what he was saying because it was so arcane. You see, Buddhism in Tibet had remained so isolated. There were very few visitors there. So the, the good part of that was it retained its authenticity and depth. But the negative part was when it came to the West, we didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And it was just so abstract and bizarre. But I remember I, I knew there was something there. I had to persevere with it. But I knew that when I heard the word karma and I asked what it meant, that resonated. And for me, the concept, I felt that had been missing in my life. The idea, I never, I, even though I was a Catholic, I never thought of God as my creator. I just liked the concept of God and devotion. I liked those ideas, but never creator. So when I heard about karma, and then I learned that consciousness, not physical, continuity, you create your own reality, you create your own rebirth. Then I realized your mind, and I was also a very radical feminist, so it was a bit shocking to me, these patriarchal Tibetans and Indians, who, where the women sat in the back row and the, you know, the, 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 all the boys were the boss. I thought, if this is integral to the actual view, I don't want to be a Buddhist, that's ridiculous. When I heard about consciousness, their view of the mind, not physical, and this marvelous potential, then I realized in, in reincarnation that I've been a boy countless times, I've been a girl countless times, and my mind is not male, female, dog, or human, it's fundamentally pure, that, that's the one that sustained me, and then that I'm in charge, I like being in charge, I'm not the product of someone else's handiwork, I'm the person who created myself, so it's in my hands to create the person I want to become, that's the most powerful one for me. And that's the basis of practice, and that I try to retain that every day, which means you take responsibility, and it lessens blame and ego and fears and attachment and anger. It's very powerful. It works slowly, of course. You've got to really do the work internally. Mm. So potentially for the individuals in the listening audience, what um, what's required nowadays of becoming a Buddhist nun or monk? Well, becoming a Buddhist first, labeling yourself a Buddhist. I mean, how do you label yourself anything? You know, we all got lots of labels, haven't we? Some of us resist labels, but I mean, that's being nihilistic. You got, you, you got to. I mean, you know, it's even now with our gender, it's fascinating. We're trying to find what label suits us, and it can get very tortured sometimes, can't it? So, it is useful to have a label. First, I want to say this first. It is useful to have a label because it at least helps you communicate with each other. But if we identify too strongly, concretely with that label, that's the cause of all the suffering. So if I'm convinced that I'm female and you're male and all I do is see the differences will always be at odds. Whereas if I can say I am a girl or I'm, an, I'm, I'm a, what are you, all these different cis something, all the different terms, I haven't learned them all, I'm sorry, I'm not being insulting. Whatever they are, know that I am that, but it's not, it's not, it's not the core of my being. The fundamental energy we have is goodness and virtue and clarity and wisdom and intelligence. That's the common ground. So we can be different labels and that's fine. But we often either chuck the label out and become nihilistic or we over-exaggerate the label and we identify with only that and then we go mad. So we've got to really have the label, be very spacious about it because it's just, it's just it's conventional reality. It's fine, it's cisgender transgender, whatever you want, but that's it. But it's not, if you strip away all the externals, strip away the clothing, strip away the breasts, strip away all the bits and pieces, you've just got a physical shape and in there is a consciousness and we're all the same there. So that to me in general is the point. Now next, why do I want to become a Buddhist? None. Or even a Buddhist, how do you become a Buddhist? Like you become anything when you decide you like it. You, you, you know, if you're trying to play tennis, you don't resist the label tennis. Oh, I'm not going to label myself a tennis player. Well, then you won't learn tennis if you don't. Don't be ridiculous. You can't say you're a cricket player. You're not. You're a tennis player. So accept it, and then you learn to do what you need to do to find tennis. You go find a tennis coach and you practice tennis. Same with being a Buddhist. You learn to know who Buddha is. What is it? Do I like those views? Do they make sense? I'd like to identify with those and use those methods. That's identifying with it. But it doesn't have to be evident to anybody else on the planet. That can be completely private, just your business. You know, you don't have to show everybody. 
And then, so for me being a nun, I'm doing the, I've got the uniform, right? But uniforms can be helpful. There's labels again. I mean, if I'm desperate to go to the hospital, I need to find the bloody nurse, not the toilet cleaner. I need to see the uniform. I need to see the label. I'll be confused. So when labels are helpful sometimes, we need them. So for me being a Buddhist nun, I wear this very lightly with my bald head and my clothes. I don't need them. But it's, it's, it's a label people recognise now. They appreciate. They like the Dalai Lama. They see me looking like him. They like him. So it helps people. I remember one woman one time in Santa Cruz, I was having my coffee in the morning at 8 o'clock at the cafe, and this woman walked up and she said, I'm just so grateful to see you. I wanted to kill myself this morning, and just seeing you has been a good sign for me. So when things like that happen, then I can see the benefit of having a shape, a form, a uniform, and a label. But I don't intrinsically think oh, I'm a Buddhist nun and I wouldn't be anything if I'm not. But I am that without grasping it, you know. So and the nun one is just one extra level where I committed. I committed to fully develop, to fully commit to the whole approach, the philosophy, the psychology, and to the practice of it without having to worry about mortgages and babies and children and houses and rents and things. That's all. That's the difference. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. Do you so, so as we wrap up the conversation, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I don't care if you call yourself a Mickey Mouseist. All I care is that we look into our mind, own responsibility, grow up, have self-respect, realize and we can realize we can turn ourselves into this. We have got this marvelous potential and to identify with that potential, to take responsibility and grow ourselves. It's like we are a work in progress, develop ourselves and turn ourselves into this marvelous person. And then, and that's the wisdom wing, and then we can practice the compassion wing, which is to help others. So whatever method you use, I don't care. That's mm -hmm. the job. Uh, where can people learn more about you and uh, find your book? Not my book. It's my oh, teacher's book. Your teacher's <laughs> it's book. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the book, how to, the book is um, How to Face Death Without Fear, published by Wisdom Publications. Wisdom Publications in Boston. Wisdom. And uh, I've got a, I think there's a website there that people do for me, beingacorton.com, and my schedule is on there, and there's various things on there. Great. That's it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you not only for coming on the show, but all, all the work that you do, all the teaching you do, the inspiring individuals to live a more compassionate and fulfilling life. For all that, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for what you're doing. You're great. Thank Wonderful you. what you're doing. Thank you so much, everybody. Can I sing a tiny prayer to end? Yes. Yeah. It's very short. It's, it's uh, two little prayers. In Tibetan, and the first one is really just saying, here we've been for this time together, and, and the Buddha would say nothing ever goes astray. So all these seeds we've planted this last hour together, or we've been, whatever it is, they won't go astray. So we think maybe nourish these seeds, take some advice from this, even if it's 1%, to help me develop my potential to never give up on the one hand so I can be a benefit to others, thinking this way. And then second, the second little prayer just makes the aspiration, compassion. May it grow and grow in the hearts of all. I'll just sing in Tibetan.
Thank you. That was beautiful. Good, Jeremy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for watching the Death Science Podcast. For updates and new episodes, subscribe right now. It's quick at deathscience.org. Also, remember that we all must die one day, so talk to your loved ones now about your post-life plans for your body. Learn more about creative and beneficial post-life plans at restinggrounds.org. I'm your host, Jeremy, signing off of another episode. Thank you and memento mori.